Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of our lessons in leadership and discovery, what you can learn from people outside of medicine. And we stopped at this slide last time. Remember that we've had a number of our speakers talk about the importance of training, the importance of the employee being happy, all of those things. But then you ask the question, well, how do you get the right employee? It's kind of like a football team or a basketball team. If you have really good players, there's a good chance you're going to do well. you got to have them all work together to win a championship, perhaps. But as someone once said, describing uh, a, a seven-foot basketball player, you can't, which was Lou Alcindor, who was over Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in later name, but the answer was when you're 7'3", you can't teach height, okay? But on the other hand, when you're hiring people, hiring the best people requires an overhaul of the interview process. The traditional interview process is flawed. During traditional interview, one meets with the candidates and superficially reviews their CVs and makes snap judgments as to whether they're a good fit for the job. The problem, of course, with this approach is that some people are more charismatic and gifted in interviewing than others. They interview well and land jobs, even though they're not necessarily the most qualified or the best match. Others don't shine during the interview, but if given the opportunity, can accomplish amazing things. The hiring process is a high-stakes endeavor that deserves more care and attention. And this was also said by Horst Schultes. It was also said by Ed Cavmill and many others. Um, the importance, Paul Greenberg, the importance of interviewing. How do you interview people? Don't do it once. Do it in the morning. Do it in the evening. Do it in different scenarios that are part of that patient's job eventually. Now, once you hire the best people, Eric makes the point also you need to inspire them to perform at their best. We clearly define the vision and mission of the organization and expectations for each member of the team. We show them how their individual contributions fits into the big picture and how even menial tasks that seem below their level of expertise are critical to their mission. We hold weekly meetings to keep one another accountable and focused on the mission. We use a program called 90IO that allows each member to set 90-day goals and to-do lists to accomplish these goals. The program collects these data and shares these goals and to-do lists at all weekly meetings. We open each meeting by alternately sharing something about our personal lives and something positive about work to set the tone of the meeting. Then we take turns and evaluate whether we are accomplishing our tasks and our track toward our 90-day goals. It also makes the point that Eric is on top of people. It's not that he interviews somebody once a year. How many of you in your practice interview somebody in June and do the evaluations? You look at their CV, you talk to them, you check a box. That's all you're doing. And Eric Becker made the point that when you're doing an interview or an evaluation once a year, all you're doing it is to check a box. Because if I meet with you in June only, and I say you're doing well, or you're doing poorly, or you need to do better with this, that, and the other, it's too late. The year ends in two weeks. I need to be speaking to you during that 12-month period. Jim Travacant, who was uh, head of uh, healthcare at Harris Corp and one of the senior people at Accenture, and now is in a number of different businesses, made the point that retail finance and virtually all other industries have undergone a digital transformation. 
Consumers have come to expect seamless transactions between the physical and digital experiences. Sounds very much like uh, Brian King from Marriott. We tap an app and expect our custom brew to be on the counter when you arrive at our coffee shop. We enter an address into our telephone and expect a car to show up in minutes to take us to our destination without ever opening our wallets. Healthcare, for good reason, is slower than most industries to embrace transformational change. Nevertheless, whether you like it or not, disruption is coming. What is different in healthcare in being disrupted from the outside and by non-traditional houses from adjacent markets? And so legacy health players, the Hopkins, the Cleveland Clinics, Partners, Mayo, Ascension, Stanford, MD Anderson, Kaiser, you name it, they have trust. But the challenges lies in how to convert this treasured access into a compelling future amid industry change. There are two options, defend your brand and operating model, or leverage your brand into a trusted ecosystem to create a future fueled by the disruption. And think about who's getting into healthcare. One way or the other, Microsoft, particularly now with Nuance, Amazon, One Medical, uh, think of it that way, Google, every one of these big companies is looking at how to get into medicine for a range of reasons. Established healthcare brands will need to partner with each other and industry outsiders to create their desired future. The confluence of tech, policy, consumer demand, and emerging partnerships should signal to traditional health entities that now is the time to act. And if you don't act now, as many of our other speakers have talked, the opportunity may have passed you by, and you may deal be dealing with a company that ends up being the new Eastman Kodak or Polaroid or Silicon Graphics. Radiology is being disrupted by AI and other forces. Indeed, radiology will be transformed by emerging technologies more quickly than any other medical specialty. Think about pathology, dermatology, ophthalmology. They're going to be up there as well. Radiology departments should lean in, harness the disruption, and build strategic partnerships to frame new delivery and business models. Remember, Many of you in your practice now have members of your group 3,000 miles away. You've never seen them, they've never seen you, and you will never see them. This whole way of doing things, remote reading has become mainstream. And it's not just remote where it's two days a week, but it's 100% of the time. This indeed is a challenge. Now, of course, the other thing is we talk about this whole experience. One word that has been used a bit more ever since COVID and ever since the disruption where people are leaving jobs and are unhappy is empathy. We had Linda Carter, who was the original Wonder Woman and was the Wonder Woman and is a Wonder Woman, speak about that. Wonder Woman embodies additional qualities of empathy, intellect, peace, justice, and equality. The Wonder Woman comics mirror shifts in traditional gender roles that were coming after World War II. During the war, many women worked outside the home to meet demands of wartime uh, industrial production. They worked in heavy industrial manufacturing plants that were previously dominated by men. This unleashed the genie in the bottle and instilled the idea that women could work along men as equals in the workforce rather than staying at home. The changing attitudes paved the way for the women's right movement of the 60s and the 70s. 
When we had Linda Carter here, we had a few people who had questions for her who were women physicians who were literally in tears because they said that Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, served as an inspirational role model at a time when there were few role models in real life. She was a trailblazer which showed that she did not need to fit into the culturally expected mold. She embraced her unique qualities and forged her own path. Nowadays, we have high-profile women leaders such as Kamala Harris, Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, who reinforced the idea that women can be strong leaders. And it's not a woman or a man, it's both can do it. Now, we also have ways of thinking about things differently. Lindsay Juris Rosner, who's head of a company called Wealthy, not like wealthy as in money, but wealthy, W-E-L-T-H-Y, as in doing well. One in five working adults serves as a family caregiver and is responsible and is responsible and has extreme responsibilities. And this wears on you physically, emotionally, and also financially. These individuals often epitomize the sandwich generation with high levels of burnout because of the competing needs of their careers, balance against childcare and elder care. Employees come to work distracted and stressed out and use different kinds of leave to manage care obligations. Caregiving is still primarily a woman's issue. If you don't believe that, look at COVID. Care became even more complicated with COVID because people had to be careful about who came into their homes, which basically meant nobody, which meant the woman was keeping her job and doing the childcare. Um, we now are talking about the great resignation. Medical practices are now finding themselves short of everything from technologists to nurses to radiologists to front desk employees. New types of benefits such as concierge service platforms may make people feel more valued and can lead to improved engagement, morale, recruitment, and retention. So what she's helping provide and many companies are hiring her and her team as a benefit that can help people in moments of difficulty. You have a sick parent, a sick child. How do you do? How do you get help? What can you do? You don't know how to do this. Well, you want a professional. And that's what her company provides. Now, another thing that many of the speakers have emphasized is integrity. We know that you need to have integrity. Now, it does seem at times these days, integrity is in short supply. Eric Becker made the point on his first visit to Hopkins, and he did visit us twice, it's important to remember that what you tolerate, you in fact endorse. So his point, that sentence, very powerful. If you look the other way, it's not looking away, it's endorsing a policy. If you don't hire women, if you treat people poorly, if other people in your organization treat people poorly, and you don't do anything about it, then you're in fact endorsing it. Lack of action means you're agreeing with what's going on. It is not just how you deal with success, good results and outcomes, but how you deal with life's challenges that determines your success in business or medicine or indeed in life. Things will never always be perfect. Each of us will have to climb mountains and hills and we always hope that 
you have the strength to do it. But it is a challenge. Life is not perfect. Business and life are about providing leadership and understanding and not tolerating what shouldn't be tolerated. If you follow these rules, I believe you will be more successful, have a rewarding career, and provide excellent care for your patients. Your patients deserve nothing less, and I know you will provide nothing less. Now, Eric also, again, we mentioned this before, but talking about the hiring process, and we mentioned this, but again, this whole thing about getting the best people, showing what you tolerate, showing what you expect, all of this becomes very, very critical. And again, this whole idea about looking at a candidate with multiple interviews, looking at trivial details about a person's life, such as what sports he or she played in high school, can shed important light. For example, participation in team sports during those formative years bolsters a candidate's claim of being a team player and having the ability to lead. Dr. Cameron, who was chair of surgery for many years at Hopkins, who was the most successful at selecting residents who became superstars in surgery, always said that if you played sports, team sports, not golf, which he loves, by the way, team sports, you were then going to be more successful because you knew what you needed to do to be part of a team. Okay? When I review previous work history about candidates, I systematically write down details about each job from the earliest to the most current job. I note their former bosses' names, what they have to say about their bosses, and what their bosses would say about them. As the candidates undergo this process, they realize that all of these details are now in writing and can be verified with a quick phone call to previous employers. And again, this idea about once you have the people, staying on top of them, not in a bad way, but showing the interest and making sure that everybody is engaged cannot, cannot be uh, overemphasized. So again, a very important way to think about things. Um, when you talk about how we translate this into medicine, junior faculty members often feel overwhelmed by the clinical expectations and feel lost in navigating the academic journey. Some programs institute formalized senior junior mentorship hearings, and that has variable success. Junior faculty members may have regular meetings on a quarterly or semi-annual basis with division chiefs to evaluate progress. These sporadic meetings are not sufficient to hold faculty members accountable. Instead of using these meetings to focus on actionable tasks to keep us on track, much of the meeting may be spent on rationalizing the lack of progress. An alternative approach is to hold regular weekly or bi-weekly accountability meetings to keep everyone focused on our mission and actionable goals and ways to support one another to achieve our academic mission. Now, it's hard for all of us. I know what you say, what we all say, we're all busy. But we've started doing it in, in diagnostic every 90 days. We have a 90-day plan, so we're meeting four times a year plus the end-of-year evaluation. Now, it's not perfect but I think for many people, it can be indeed very helpful. So you need to do something and you need to have your, your employees, and I hate to use the word employees, your associates, your colleagues, they need to be engaged and you need to be leading it. Dave Hellman spoke last year, one of the most important medical challenges in 2022, I believe they were aging, disparities in health and the high cost of medical care. No one could have predicted COVID. 
In the last year, I have come to believe that the most important challenge is humanizing medicine. I'm reminded of Osler who said, the good doctor treats the disease, the great doctor treats the person with the disease. Francis Peabody says, one of the essential qualities of the clinician is interest in humanity, for the secret of the care of the patient is caring for the patient. You gotta read those quotes slowly and think about them. Dave Hellman is possibly the greatest physician in the past 50 years at Hopkins. However, most patients are not known as people. Most physicians are not excellent at knowing their patients. Most doctors do not listen. There are many system impediments to listening, such as the constant use of the electronic medical record, not knowing patients as people is associated with worse outcomes, and chronic diseases such as diabetes, higher costs, lower patient and family satisfaction, and burnout among doctors and nurses. Dehumanization in medicine leads to many indignities. That's very sad, but Dave Hellman put it very nicely, and it's very true. Academic medicine and academic radiology must continue to think in revolutionary and creative ways. People who are attracted to academic medicine want to be part of important ideas and initiatives. Although at first glance, we think of discovery as a measure of success, caring for patients in a humanizing manner is the true measure of success. Radiology will inevitably continue to evolve into a more patient-facing specialty, increasing emphasis on interventional radiology, radionuclide therapy, and interaction between imagers and patients indicates the need for our specialty to know people as patients and patients as people. We should embrace the humanization of medicine as an opportunity to keep our place as key caregivers and stave off the commodization of radiology. Now, radiology will have to move in that direction. Again, I took a little quote from that last slide, but again, the question is how we do this. Some people write articles and they say, oh, AI is gonna do it because AI will be more efficient. We'll read the 50 cases in four hours rather than 10 hours. We'll have six hours to talk to the patient. My friends, unless you're naive or I'm naive, if you're reading twice, if you can read twice as fast, the expectations will be for you to read not 50 cases, but read 100 cases. No one's going to say, oh, you read 50 before, you're reading 50 now, and for the rest of the day, go chit-chat with patients. I'm afraid that the way we do medicine now, where everything is RVU measured, this is going to be a challenge for us. And it's easy to say, speak to the patients, but if you're home, you're not speaking to your colleagues, you're speaking to nobody, you're not speaking to the techs, surely not the patients. And even if you're at work, you're reading as fast as you possibly can. You barely can do teaching, let alone go to the waiting room and chit-chat with a few strangers. But those strangers are not strangers. They're your patients and they're relying on you. The last thing I'll comment on is actually something that... Uh, when, when you listen to the uh, Hebrew prayers on Saturday, there's a song called from Dar la Dar, from generation to generation. And it's usually a song sung particularly well um, at Park Avenue Synagogue. Uh, I should listen to it sometime. But it's how things go from one generation to the next. Steve Wolf Pereira made the point when he spoke with us 
and he's a tremendously successful at Apple, some of the work he's doing there, but he's really into education, particularly education for under 10 and multilingual. And his point is that older people, all of us on this who are listening, are digital migrants. Gen X and Y are digital natives who are comfortable with technology. Gen Z and Gen Alpha are digital integrators. Technology is the only thing they truly understand, and it's a key part of their lives. My grandchildren, almost four and six, can use the iPhone, the iPad, better than I can. And they don't think about it because it's always been there. They don't worry about bandwidth. It's always been 5G. Children nowadays are born into technology. 95% of children under eight in the U.S. have access to a mobile device at home, including Steve's children. People ask me, what's driving technology? Large companies, venture capital. The answer is children. Again, think about these numbers. 50% of children under 15 are from minority households, and the U.S. will be multicultural majority by 2050. However, it is a problem that today's family entertainment is disconnected from where we are as a country. 50% of the leading characters on children TV are white, 27% are animals, 10% black, 7% Asian, 5% Latino, and 1% Native Americans. Animals are better represented as some of the key ethnic demographics among today's children. Those same demographics tend to be underserved by education. The pace of change will never be this slow again. Think about it that way. He's not saying the pace of change is getting faster. It's never going to be this slow. Digital technology will and is transforming every industry, including medicine. Radio took 38 years to reach 50 million users. Pokemon Go did it in six months. Education has lagged behind many other industries, but then pandemic, pandemic changed that. 65% of children entering primary school today will ultimately wind up working in jobs that currently do not exist. Let me read that again. 65% of children entering the primary job market, entering primary school today, are going to work in a job that does not exist yet. Education has traditionally been separate from entertainment and technology. In the evolving world we live in today, that cannot continue to be the case. It's hard to train someone for a job that doesn't exist. you got to train someone to be able to learn and interact. And this inflection point, particularly with AI, AI will transform education. The 20th century was about mass markets, but in the AI era, there will be markets of one. Everything will be enabled by the cloud and will be personalized and hyperlocal. Direct-to-consumer mass personalization will apply to every industry. Disney has reworked much of their company around this. Uber and Lyft are prototypical, prototypical examples. Direct-to-consumer and education is direct-to-learner. The coronavirus pandemic has accelerated the adoption of DTC in education. Our children have been forced out of the context of the classroom and into an environment of learning at home. Every parent wants their children to have the best possible start, and that means developing 21st century skills and preparing them for the AI era. And in summary, the next decade, revolution. Sounds like the Beatles songs, right? Massive demographic shifts, rapid social change, generational transitions, ongoing technology change, 
and an altogether altering of society. Digital learning will be the new normal, especially in this post-COVID era. Again, parents have seen firsthand the lack of 21st century skills that children have been acquiring. There is a tremendous impetus now to change education and make it more individualized, and that will change. Benita Stewart from Google made the point very similar, speaking about by 2027, which is only four years from now, people of color aged 18 to 29, that's Gen Z and young millennials, will be in the majority. This demographic tipping point will shape the future of the U.S. as well as the global economy. That is why we've embraced the term generational diversity to describe the need for innovation in the race for talent. New ways not only to find and hire these young people, but to retain them. To that end, we will need both inclusive leaders and deeper allyship across the races, genders, generations, and industrial sectors. Our focus is business, given our experience and educational backgrounds, but the rules of the game and the race for talent exist in every arena, including academics and medicine. Again, Benita, telling you what several other speakers, from Eric Becker to Steve said, again, things are changing. Women especially, women of color are winning every day across a range of fields. By working with allies of all ages, genders, and races, we can spread black brilliance widely and generate an economic revolution globally. Women of color are projected to represent the majority of the U.S. population by 2060. You got to think about that. Um, the American Express 2019 State of Women-Owned Business Report showed that although the number of women-owned businesses grew from 21% in 2014 to 2019 over a five-year period, firms owned by women of color were growing at double that rate. The 6.4 million businesses owned by women of color generated $422.5 billion of revenue in 2019. Again, this is very similar to Jenny Abramson. You need diversity. The population is diverse, and with diversity, you can do better. We'd, she made the point that, um, and Adams, so it was Stewart and Adams together, they wrote a book, but they endorsed Deloitte's six signature traits of an inclusive leader. Commitment, inclusive leaders are committed to diversity, inclusivity, based on their intrinsic values and deep-seated sense of fairness, rather than some extrinsic reward. Courage, these leaders have the courage to challenge entrenched organizational attitudes, display humility and acknowledge personal limitations, and to seek contributions from others to overcome them. And three, cognizance of bias. They have checks and balances to prevent organizational balance. And again, underrepresented minorities have been traditionally defined as Black, Hispanic, Native American, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. They are underrepresented as radiologists and radiology residents compared to their percent in the U.S. population. And again, we need to figure out ways of how do we change all that? Although it is important for faculty members from minority backgrounds to serve on diversity and inclusion committees, they should not be pinioned into that role to the exclusion of other leadership opportunities. And that's a very good point. If you're African-American and you need 
a committee on diversity, they're always on that committee, which they probably have a lot of knowledge and experience about that, but that may not be what they're interested in. They may be interested in imaging technology or AI implementation or dealing with patients or dealing with technologists. Whatever they're interested in, it doesn't matter. You want to make certain that you're not pigeonholed just because of your race or color. And again, the need to uh, attract more underrepresented minorities into our specialty at the residency level, it's always been a challenge. Again, programs can partner with historically black med schools, the Student National Medical Association, and the Latino Medical Student Association to maximize their reach to underrepresented minorities. They can develop longitudinal mentorship programs in the form of student interest groups, elective and summer fellowships to engage minority students who may otherwise have limited exposure to our specialty. The, the bottom line is, if we do nothing, nothing is going to change. Now, it's not easy. Most of us, you know, we're really busy. And even if you weren't as busy and you had the time, you wouldn't know where to start. I think that's really the challenge. We need people to help us make this happen. It's not all that easy to do, but it needs to be done. Tina Wells, Tina's spoken with us three times, actually. She spoke before about generational, Gen Z, and that was people 18 to 22. Gen Z tends to be more practical and driven, and this is reflected in the top 10 trends that she did discuss. The thing is, with Tina, it's so good because she shows that generation by generation, people have different expectations. People want to do things differently. She challenges the status quo. She challenges mentorship and the way it's done as not really working. And there's an article, it's in this month, so I'm telling you, December 22, JACR, an article that she wrote, it's spectacular, talking about her vision for mentorship and for many other things. So I'm kind of out of time. So what's next? I want to say the best is yet to come. I've given you three talks. I can give you another 30 talks. We'll get there over time. We're doing about eight or nine speakers a year. The topics may change, but leaders always are moving forward. Some of our topics this year are AI to Web3 to mentoring to leadership. Uh, we're talking about changing education. Very exciting. Hopefully we'll be We'll write them up, and hopefully they'll get accepted into JSCR and you can read them. If anyone really wants to hear talks on a select basis, we don't put our talks online because it becomes a problem. They're really within the Hopkins arena. Many people listen to them who are at Hopkins or who know me, so we can make it available. But we do it about once a month, and it's very exciting, and it's been a, um, a real good experience, I'll tell you personally, for me. And with that, that's part three, and I'm only going to do three parts, maybe later in the year, maybe some of the podcasts or, or uh, Facebook Live or YouTube Live, I'll address individual speakers. But until then, thanks for your time, and see you later. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.